Okay, today we are uh, in chapter 48. <clears throat> Last week, we started chapter 48 of Genesis, and uh, my intention was to get through the first seven verses, which was really a pretty simple goal, and we didn't make it. <laughs> and I'm going to blame you folks for that. <clears throat> but... Uh, we only made it through about the first four verses or so. So today, uh, we'll want to finish the things that we were uh, set to talk about last week and, and Lord willing, get through the rest of the chapter. But if we don't make it that far, then, then uh, we'll just uh, go as far as we can go. <coughs> but, <coughs> excuse me, uh, for sake of review and just kind of get, our, get the pump primed here, uh, what kind of things were we talking about last week in chapter first part there, first few verses of chapter 48? Maybe I should start it this way. Uh, We are at a stage in the story of Jacob uh, and Joseph, but particularly right now of Jacob, in which we are looking at some things at the end of his life. What are the three kind of faith events at the end of his life that we're in the middle of talking about. Okay. So, one of them is the... uh, (laughs) This is questionable here. Uh, one of them is the blessing uh, and adoption of whose sons? Joseph's. Joseph's sons, okay. By whom? By okay, by Israel or Jacob. All right. <clears throat> but before that, we looked at another major faith event in the life of Jacob. There at the end of chapter 47, what was that? Okay, his uh, request uh, to be buried in Canaan. And that reflected, that reflected Jacob's faith uh, in the promise of God that the land would be given to uh, his descendants after him. And so that's where he wanted to be buried was in this land. It also reflected Jacob's faith in the resurrection. And uh, so he requested to be buried in Canaan. Now we have the blessing and adoption of Joseph's sons by Jacob. And then the third event, which we haven't gotten to yet, is what? The prophecies. Okay. The prophecies. Uh, uh, typically, they're referred to as blessings, but I like calling them prophecies. Uh, the blessings of uh, Jacob's natural sons. Okay? So, those are the three faith events that we are in the middle of looking at at the end of Jacob's life, at the close of Jacob's life. And right now, in chapter 48, we're looking at this second one, which is the blessing and adoption of Joseph's sons. And last week we looked at those first uh, four verses or so. So again, what kind of things did we talk about last week that stick in your mind? Oh. They were raised in the palace. Mm-hmm. They were stayed with the Egyptians uh-huh. and grown up probably as big shots in the Egyptian hierarchy since they were the prime minister's sons, but they didn't 
Well, at least their descendants didn't. Yeah. 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 So they obviously identified with, yeah, identified with uh, with their family, with Israel. Good point. What else? What are the as as jo, as Jacob gets ready to adopt the sons and then to bless the sons? Where does he start in this? process of blessing and adopting the sons. What does he begin with there at the beginning of the chapter? He recounted the encounter at Bethel with God. Okay. He goes back and he talks about his encounter with Bethel. Here he refers to it as Luz. Luz is the actual name of the city or the area where this occurred. But of course, uh, Jacob had renamed it in his own experience as Bethel and becomes known later, of course, in Israeli history as uh, in the history of the Jews becomes known as Bethel. But but he uh, he goes back and he recalls his experience at Bethel. Why does he do that? God made a promise at that point. Okay. He was reflecting back and it appears from the text that he says it was slightly different. He took... I would say he took ownership of it. Okay. And it really meant something to him. Okay. And why does this pertain to what he's about to do? Or how does this pertain to what he's about to do? He's about to pass it on. Okay. Okay. He's about to pass it on. So, so as he prepares to adopt the sons and bless the sons, he, he's, he's speaking out of a context. And he wants to make it clear that he's, if you will, he's speaking with an authority. He is the one who has received blessings. So once again, we're just we're we're continuing this theme that we picked up uh, early in the story of Abraham and carried all the way through this idea of being the blessing bearer. He is the blessing bearer. He has received the blessing, and so as he blesses his sons, what he's saying or blesses what be, the ones who become his sons here by adoption. Uh, what he's saying is, I have the authority to do this. I have the blessing from God. And so it is my, uh, it is my responsibility and my privilege to go on and bestow that blessing to my children. And so that's the point of it. And we talked about some of the key themes or ideas of that blessing that Jacob stresses in uh, the story and then or in his recollection. And then we talked about some of the distinctions that, that you were talking about, some of the ways that he tells the story differently than it was originally told by the narrator, okay, which reflects Jacob's frame of mind. So there's kind of two aspects that we looked at last week, the themes that Jacob develops and then the differences in the way he told it. So let's go back and think for a minute. What, were, what are the main themes or the main points about that blessing at Luz that he recounts as he, as he talks to Jacob or as he talks to Joseph here? What are the things that stand out that he's, that he's drawing on there about that? Who does he say spoke to him? God Almighty appeared to him. Okay. He uses the name El Shaddai, God Almighty. Okay, what's the significance of that? Why does he call him El Shaddai here? You people are really slow on the uptake this morning. <laughs> Going to have to give you a C plus today. Is it an open book test? Uh, it's an open book test. You can look. Okay, that's how God identified Himself. Now, why would God identify Himself as He's beginning to make these promises to Abraham? Why would He identify Himself as El Shaddai? It was impossible with men. Okay. This, this, is, this is out of your league, Jacob. <laughs> this is something you can't do. This is something no man can do. This is something I will do. Okay. And uh, so, he, so as Jacob recalls the story and tells the story to Joseph, he emphasizes this idea that this is El Shaddai. This is the almighty God that has made these promises. And what are the promises that God made? 
Okay? He's going to give him a great multitude that they would endure and become a great company of nations. Okay? So it's this, once again, it's this promise of descendants or promise of the seed uh, that he makes. And then the second aspect of God's promise there was what? The possession of the land. The possession of the land. And, he, and Jacob says an everlasting possession. So those are the kind of the three things that stick out as Jacob recalls the story. Is that it's El Shaddai who is promising uh, a, a, a vast multitude of descendants who would possess this land in an everlasting possession. Okay, And then we talked about the ways that Jacob told the story that are different than the way the narrator told the story originally in chapter 35. What were the three ways in which Jacob's recalling or retelling of the story differ somewhat from the the way the narrator first told the story? Okay, okay. Originally, when when God spoke it, He spoke it in the imperative. Uh, so it, it seems like a command. Now, it's not that God is actually giving a command there, but the idea is he's just emphasizing the certainty of the promise. But when Jacob retells the story, instead of recalling it in the imperative, he recalls it as God telling him that he was going to do it. Okay? That, that this was something that what God was going to do by his power rather than something that Jacob himself would, was going to do. And so, so we see this this development in the thinking of Jacob as he, as he as he goes on in life he becomes more cognizant of the of the fact that the things that are going to happen in his life by the promise of God are things that God is going to accomplish not things that he has to accomplish by the arm of the flesh if you will okay so the first thing was the uh, the imperative there what's the second thing what's the second way in which Jacob recalls the story a little differently, or retells the story, I should say, a little differently. Okay, Jacob doesn't say anything about the kings. God said that there were going to be kings come forth from him, but Jacob doesn't include that when he's talking to Joseph. Why does he not include that when he's talking to Joseph? Okay, okay, because this promise of kings really doesn't apply to Joseph and Joseph's descendants. It applies to Judah's descendants, okay? So it doesn't really apply to Joseph. Now, we'll find as we go through the, through the story of Israel, we'll find out that there are a line of kings that come from Joseph, but they are the line of the pretending kings. Jeroboam and his descendants in the northern kingdom actually come uh, from Ephraim. But, uh, but as far as the promise of God is concerned, the kings coming forth from him, uh, that's a promise for Judah, not for Joseph. And, and apparently Jacob understands that and perceives that at this point, so he doesn't include that in his retelling of the story to Joseph. And then what was the third thing? Okay, the everlasting possession that God did promise Jacob the land, but he didn't include that, that aspect of the promise that it would be an everlasting possession. So why does Jacob assert that God has made a promise of an everlasting possession? Okay, great. Because that's exactly what God had said to Abraham. And so Jacob understands the promise of God given to him at Bethel in chapter 35, he understands it as being part of or in the context of the promise that God gave to his grandfather Abraham uh, many years earlier in which God did specify that it would be an everlasting covenant. One thing I thought about yesterday as I was rethinking through some of these things is, is that illustrates for us uh, one principle of understanding the Scriptures. The scriptures are really the primary commentary on themselves. Before we go to others to understand, you know, and read other commentaries about the Bible and what does the, you know, what does the Bible mean? Uh, what we need to first ask ourselves is what does the Bible say about itself? The Bible is its best own commentary, and so 
when I look at a passage of Scripture, I need to understand that passage of Scripture not only in its immediate context, but I need to understand that Scripture in the context of all of Scripture. A classic example of that, uh, where we do that, is in the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay? We understand that Scripture teaches that God is one. Okay? But we don't stop there because we understand that other scripture also teaches that God is three distinct persons. Okay, so we put those ideas together to come to the understanding of the Trinity. So we understand that though God is one, he really has three distinct eternal persons. On the other hand, when we read the verses that where the father talks about the son or the son talks about the father or the son talks about the Holy Spirit, we understand quite clearly that God is three persons, but we don't conclude from that, that that there are three gods. Because from other scripture, we realize that God is one. Okay? So that's illustrative of this principle that, we, that, that at any point in scripture, we understand any given passage in scripture in light of the whole context of scripture. And that's simply what Jacob is doing here. He has a promise from God, but he realizes that God has said more about this promise than what he said to him there at Bethel. That there have been other things said that he said to Abraham and, and Jacob claims that as part of the promise as well. Okay? So that just kind of illustrates that principle of how we understand and interpret scripture. So, so Jacob is setting out then this experience he had as at Luz at Bethel as the as the reason for and the authority by which he is he is going to do what he is about to do which is to adopt and bless the sons of Joseph now as as you read the story what in chapter 48 what what it appears like is that he adopts the sons first and then he blesses the sons. And that's uh, pretty much the way it's set forth. But what we need to understand is that these things are really interwoven. You can't separate them. They're really kind of one, the blessing and the adoption. The reason that Jacob adopts Joseph's sons is in order that he might bless them. He wants to extend to them the same blessing that he's going to be giving to his own sons that God has given to him. He wants to give them that same kind of blessing. And to do that, he needs to adopt them. So the adoption and the blessing really are interwoven together and you really can't separate them. Let's read about it and then we'll go uh, through it and talk about it some more. We'll just pick up in the first of the chapter again. Now, it came about after these things that Joseph was told... Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in, his, in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. 
Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, the God, whom, uh, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Well, we come now uh, to the actual adoption. He has set forth the groundwork, which is his, uh, his, the theophany that he experienced there at Bethel. And so we come now to the adoption. Uh, and he, he uh, tells Joseph that his two sons who were born to him in Egypt before Jacob came to Egypt, meaning Manasseh firstborn and Ephraim the younger, would be his sons on a level equal to uh, Reuben and Simeon. Okay, So he, he just simply points out that Reuben and Simeon are his two eldest sons. And just as they are Jacob's sons, so Ephraim and Manasseh are going to be considered uh, Jacob's sons, I always get them, I'm talking about Jacob and Joseph together, I always get them turned around here. That they would be Jacob's sons as far as the inheritance is concerned. Okay. So, when, when Jacob adopts the two sons of Joseph as his own and gives part of the inheritance to each one of those sons, what is he in effect doing? An open-ended question for which I probably will not get the answer I'm looking for. But Pardon? Okay, he equates them with the two oldest. He's now actually taking Joseph, if you will, Joseph's name, Okay, okay. Uh, but actually, Joseph will get a blessing when we get to chapter 49, but, but he is doing something with Joseph. What's he doing with Joseph? Essentially. Pardon? He's giving them double portion, which is what? He's the firstborn, okay? So this is the very thing his brothers dreaded all along, right? That Joseph was going to get the double inheritance, okay? And that is, in fact, what happens here. That Joseph, in essence, gets the double inheritance, but Jacob just bypasses Joseph and just gives it to his sons right off the bat, okay? Obviously, Jake, uh, Joseph's not needing anything at this point. He's the, he's the vice president of Egypt. He's in pretty good shape. But, but he is, in essence, in one sense, he's making Joseph, he's putting Joseph in the, as far as the blessing is concerned, he's putting Joseph in the position of the firstborn. Okay. Now, we're going to find when we get to chapter 49 that it doesn't really work out exactly that way. Okay, uh, Because Judah gets in here too. But, but at this point, what it appears like is that, is that Joseph is being elevated. And that is, in fact, uh, exactly what the Chronicle teller tells us in First Chronicles that was 
Jacob's intention here was to bypass Reuben, who was the firstborn, uh, because of the evil that Reuben had done uh, earlier back in uh, the end of chapter 37 or wherever it was. Uh, so so he, he now declares that he is going to adopt the sons. And as we said, the, the intent of the adoption is in order that he might bless them in the way that he wants to bless them. The purpose of the adoption is the blessing. That's why you were adopted. You were adopted by God in order that He might bless you. The sons of Joseph are adopted by Jacob because of the blessing that Jacob wants to extend to them. And God adopted you because He wanted to include you in His family and He wanted you to experience all the blessings of being His child. And so this is a a really neat picture of what God has done for us. That He has looked on us and He has adopted us because of the blessings that He wished to extend to us. And that's what Jacob is doing here. He's doing it, of course, by the authority of of, uh, the blessing that was given to him. But he has another motivation for doing what he's doing. And that comes out in verse 7 when you see he says, Now as for me, when I came from Paden, or Paden, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. Now, at first reading, it just seems like kind of the, you know, just kind of the arbitrary ramblings of an old man here. You know, he's just kind of going on, just, you know, talking about stuff that happened in the past. But, but what he's saying here is that, is that in addition to adopting these sons in order that I might bless them, I am also adopting these sons for what reason? For what purpose or what motive here? Okay. And who is Rachel? I mean, aside from the fact that she's these two young men's granddaughter, grandmother, who is she? I want to see how you're going to conclude this. You're already disagreeing with me, and you don't even know if I'm going to say it. (laughs) You're getting ready to say that it's as if they were Rachel's sons because she wasn't available. No, actually, that's not what I was going to say. Ah, see, I got you. All, all I think is happening here is that is that Rachel is who is Rachel? Well, yes, she's Joseph's mother, but she who else is? Huh? Pardon? She was Jacob's beloved wife. Okay, she was the one he really wanted to marry. Okay, he just had to marry Leah first because of Laban's trickery. Okay, but this is his beloved wife, and. And as much as he wanted to have children from her, she, you know, it was a long time and she finally gave him Joseph and then ultimately, finally, she gives him also Benjamin, but then she, she dies in childbirth when she's giving him Benjamin before they ever really make it back home. I mean, they are in Canaan they, and he makes that point that she dies in Canaan, but he also makes the point that it's on the journey. I never really even got her back to see Dad. And she died. And this is his beloved wife. And that what, so what, I think what he's trying to say here is that in adopting these sons, one of the things I'm trying to do is I'm trying to honor Rachel. I'm trying to, I'm trying to elevate and honor this woman that I loved. So, it's, so it has the, the purpose of the, the adoption has the purpose and the intent of blessing the sons of Joseph but it also has the intent or purpose for Jacob of honoring this wife uh, whom he loved and who died in childbirth and for whom he's not had the privilege of enjoying her presence with him uh, for the rest of his life. And so it's his way of remembering and honoring Rachel. Okay? Well, uh, then, all of a sudden, verse 8, what happens? 
Okay? So all of a sudden, it's kind of like out of the blue. He says, who are these other guys here? Okay? So, now, in verse 10, it says that he's blind. I assume from this that he's not completely blind, but that he's... That is, uh, that his vision is severely impaired, okay? And, uh, uh, but, but whether or not he just kind of sees some kind of shadows there or whatever, or whether he is completely blind and he just finally just senses the presence of these two young men, he, he senses that they, they are, these are others with him and he asks, who are they? Okay, now, some, some commentators suggest that he knew they were there all along. And that the question here is a formality for the purposes of the blessing. Oh, yeah, a formal presentation type of thing. And that's a possibility. And there's nobody who would understand the importance of that more than Jacob, right? Why? He was going to the trickery. Yeah. He fooled his dad. He fooled his father in order to get the blessing. Uh, by pretending to be somebody other than whom he was. So there is the possibility here that this is a formality that Jacob is going through to ensure that these guys are, given his impaired sight, that these guys really are who he thinks they are. Okay? So, so he asks who they are, and Joseph responds, These are my sons whom God has given to me here in Egypt. And, uh, and so he immediately recognizes, as Joseph always does, uh, faithfully always recognizes, God's doing everything in his life, you know, and he never takes credit for itself. And here again, he recognizes that these sons are from God and, and that they have been given to him here in the land of Egypt, which, of course, is the land of his affliction. And the, and the sons are even named, of course, as we know, with that in mind. Uh, and then uh, uh, and then Jacob says, "Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them." And so he asked Jacob to or asked Joseph to bring them close to him, and he brings them he brings them near to him. How near to him does he bring them? Okay, close enough to kiss and embrace. Okay, so get the picture here. Jacob is sitting up on the edge of his bed. Okay? Joseph is here, and he asks him to bring the sons close, and they come close, and Jacob kisses them and embraces them, which places his sons, his new new sons, Joseph's sons, places them where? Right at his what? Pardon? His knees. Right at his knees. Okay? Now, he... You got to remember here. How old are these guys? When were they born? They were born in the famine. No. Actually, the scripture actually specifies they were born before the famine. Probably ten years old, maybe. Okay, so they were born before the famine, which lasted how long? Seven years, okay. Oh, you're saying and, we're at the end of the famine. And, and, and now where are we? At the end of Jacob's life, which is what? Twelve years after the famine. Okay? So you have seven years of famine plus twelve years after the famine. So these are not little kids, you know? Oftentimes when we read this story, we think they're little boys and they come and they sit on Jacob's lap, you know. Well, that doesn't work. <laughs> These guys are in their late teens or early 20s. They're not sitting on Jacob's lap, okay. But they come close enough to him, that he, to his knees, and that's significant, so that he can kiss them and embrace them. And when Jacob kisses them and embraces them, it's certainly heartfelt. It's certainly meant, but it is also a formality, it is the way that he expresses, I have adopted them as my sons. I love them as they are my own sons. And so he kisses them and he embraces them. And once he has kissed them and embraced them, then what does Joseph do? He arranges them. Before that, he's brought them to Jacob. Jacob has kissed them and embraced them. Joseph takes them from his knees. Okay, and there's the reference to the knees. Okay, now what is the significance of the knees? Well, 
other than the fact that by the time you're Jacob's age, they don't work anymore, <laughs> as we know. <laughs> What's the significance of the knees? It is also emblematic of adoption. Do you remember when, when Rachel couldn't have any children? She wasn't having any children. What did she do in order to have children? What did she give to Jacob? Gave to her maidservant Bilhah. Okay. And when she brought Bilhah to Jacob, for Jacob to go into her, He said, you go into her in order that she might give birth on my knees. So there is this association of the child being placed on the knees of a person is emblematic of adoption. What she's saying is, when Bilhah has children, they'll be placed on my knees as my children, as my sons. Okay? Which is what, in fact, happens. So those... Those sons that Bilhah bore become Jacob's sons by adoption because they are placed on Rachel's knees. Okay. So, so this idea of bringing the sons of Joseph to the knees of Jacob is emblematic or symbolic or is another formality of the adoption process. It's a way of expressing, I have adopted these sons. They have come to my knees. Of course, now they're too big to be actually literally placed on his knees, but they come to his knees. And now Joseph takes them from his knees in order that he might do what? Okay, he's going to bow before Jacob. So now we have... Joseph, the prince of Egypt, the great vizier of Egypt, the one before whom Jacob himself has bowed, bowing to Jacob. And when Joseph bows to Jacob, what is he acknowledging? What's he saying when he bows with his face to the ground to his father in this context? He's honoring his authority to do what? Okay, to deliver the blessing and to adopt the sons. He's saying, he's saying, I'm giving this over to you. This is this. You have you are the father. You are the patriarch. Now, when it comes to matters of politics uh, and, and, and that sort of thing, Joseph is, Joseph is the top dog, right? But when it comes to the matter of the blessings and the promises of God, Jacob is supreme. And so Joseph bows himself to the ground as if to say, if you want my sons, you get my sons. And he acknowledges his father's authority to adopt and bless the sons. Now, please excuse me here for for using Joseph to portray something that's really not very good. But 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 I thought this was a neat metaphor here, as I was thinking on this yesterday. Because there's something like this that goes on with each one of us when God adopts us, is there not? You see, before God adopted us, whose sons were we? We were sons of Satan. We were the sons of the evil one, right? But when God decides He's going to adopt us, He has the authority to do that. We were once the sons and subjects of the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. We were His. And He had dominion and authority and power over us. But when God in His grace chose to adopt us as His sons, He is supreme. And Satan himself must bow to the ground and acknowledge that it is his right and his privilege and his prerogative to adopt us and to acknowledge our adoption by the Father. Now, 
Obviously, he fights that, he resists that, he protests against that, but the reality is, he doesn't have any say in the matter. Jacob didn't ask Joseph here, can I adopt your sons? Jacob just says, I'm going to do it because I want to bless him. And that's what God did for you. He said, I want to adopt you. I want to bless you. I want to make you part of my family. And the one whose son you've been, whose daughter you've been all these years, the one who is the God of this world has no say in the matter. I'm going to adopt you. And that's what God does. Well, yeah. Back to what I said earlier, I was thinking, it must have been at this point, these two guys, probably in their early 20s, not only were formally adopted, they must have gone and just started living with the children of Israel. Uh, it makes sense that they would because they're identified with them. And the first thought is, rich kids growing up in the house, going out here with the shepherds, and that's a big transition, but in line with what you were saying, it's almost like when we become adopted by God, we leave the world yeah. and we go stay with God. Good point. Great point. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. That's a great point. Okay. Well, uh, let me just double check here. My watch was playing tricks on me earlier this morning. Is it really about 17 minutes after? Okay. All right. I, I had to reset my watch this morning. I don't know if it's because I bumped it or if the batteries run down. So I just wanted to make sure I was was on time. Okay. I don't know if I'm on time, but I have the right time. <laughs> I don't know why you people are laughing. <laughs> so now he has bowed low and he has acknowledged he has acknowledged this adoption. Okay. Now it comes time for the blessing, which is the whole point of the matter, right? So what does Joseph do now? He lines him up with the oldest Okay. So the narrator is very particular to make sure we understand exactly how this happened. Okay, so he he really wants us to understand. He takes a couple of verses to explain this how this whole thing happened. He says Joseph takes uh, Ephraim in his right hand with his right hand and guides him to his father, which puts him at his father's left hand, and takes Manasseh with his Joseph's left hand and guides him to his father, which puts him at Jacob's right hand, and why does he do that? Excuse me? The right hand should be on the older. Okay, because he wants Jacob to place his right hand. He just assumes that Jacob wants to place his right hand on Manasseh, who is the firstborn. Okay? Because the primary blessing, the greater blessing, goes to the firstborn. This is the the cultural principle of primogeniture. Okay? That... That the firstborn gets the bennies, okay? Now, it, for all of us who are the youngest in the families, I raise my hand, you know, which you can tell by my personality, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, for all of us who are the youngest, you know, we kind of resent this whole thing, this whole idea of primogenitor, you know, like Jacob did, you know. This isn't fair, you know. But we've already, <laughs> but we've already talked about why in a patriarchal culture it was a necessity, Within the patriarchal culture, it was necessary for the preservation of the clan and for the preservation of the tribe for the oldest to get the double inheritance because he was going to be the one who was financially responsible for the entire clan. He was the one who was going to take the patriarch's place. And in doing so, he has all this additional responsibility, which means he needs the additional resources and certainly deserves additional remuneration for all the work that's entailed in being the head of the clan. So it's all very logical. It all makes great sense. And so, operating out of this patriarchal culture, it's only assumed that the oldest will get the greater blessing. And so Joseph, who lives within this culture, Joseph, a man who we've seen throughout his whole life story, is a man who, who's just blessed with spiritual insight. Just assumes at this point that we're going to do things the way they're done. And my oldest son, Manasseh, is going to get the greater blessing. So he puts Manasseh in a place at the right hand to receive the greater blessing. 
But blind old Jacob, what does he do? He crosses his arms. He goes, you ain't fooling me, Joseph. I may be half blind, but I know this is Manasseh and this is Ephraim. This is Ephraim and this is Manasseh. Excuse me. Now I'm getting crossed here. Okay. And he crosses his arms. So it's very clear that Jacob intentionally intends to disregard primogeniture and to bless the younger greater. And then, and I don't know why it's written this way, I don't know if it actually happens chronologically the way the narrator tells the story to us or not, but, but what immediately happens then is, is according to the, the chronology of the passage of the text, he immediately launches into the blessing and begins to give the blessing before Joseph has a chance to react. You know, I don't know if he was trying to cut Joseph short here, but he just immediately starts to bless. And he starts to invoke this blessing or invoke God in the blessing of these lads. And it calls them lads, but a better translation there would be young men. Okay. But so he's about he's about to utter this blessing and he invokes. Who does he invoke as the source of the blessing? And and he doesn't want to leave any doubt, does he? He gives three identifying aspects of the God who will be blessing these two boys, these two young men. And the first identifier is that this is the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Now, that idea of walking before God is loaded with significance and meaning. God has said to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17, He says, If you will walk before Me, then I will do thus and so. Okay? And, and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, this idea of walking before God or walking with God or walking in the presence of God is brought up over and over and over again. So we have Enoch who walked with God and he was not for God. We have Noah who walked with God. We have these great men of God and the way they are described is they are men who walked with God or men who walked before God. And the idea of one who walks before God is one who is so intimate with God that he walks with Him in obedience and in faith. This characterized Noah, it characterized Enoch, it characterized Abraham, it characterized Isaac. You notice Jacob doesn't include himself there. I think we can include Jacob, but, but he realizes he stumbled quite a bit, so he doesn't really include himself there. But, but he's saying the God that Abraham, your, your great-grandfather in the case of the boys, uh, the God before whom Abraham walked, or the God that Abraham walked with and obeyed and trusted, that is the God I'm asking to bless you. And one of the things that he's communicating here is the continuity of the blessing and the continuity of the relationship. It's the idea that we're passing the baton. You're not just simply kind of just out here, you know, and God, you know, God's going to just bless you. But there's a there's a continuity, there's a history to it, and you are simply carrying you are simply carrying the baton that has been passed to you from your grandfather, great grandfather, to your grandfather, to your father, and now to you. And so there's this sense of. I can look back and I can see how God blessed my grandfather and how God blessed my, my, my great-grandfather and God blessed my grandfather and God blessed my father. And I can see how God blessed each one of these. And, 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 and that gives me faith to believe that God will bless me as well. So there's that sense of hope and promise in seeing that God has done it before. But there's also that sense of responsibility. Boy, you don't want to be the one to drop the baton. I don't know however, however many of you have run track. I, I, I hesitate to say it, but I did. I didn't run very well and I didn't run very fast. You know, one of the disadvantages of having long legs 
is it doesn't matter how fast you run, it still looks like you're running slow. And the guys on my track team always used to say, Rick, you're not, you're not running very fast. I was, I'm making these legs move a second. But it doesn't look like you're running fast. Well, then, that's another story. Anyway, I ran track. And if you ran track, if you ran relays, you know. You may be the fourth one in the, in the relay. Okay, You may be the fourth person. And it doesn't matter one bit how well the first three guys ran if you drop the baton. It doesn't matter. If you drop the baton, the race is over. So there's a sense of responsibility when you're there and you're the fourth guy, you're the, the anchor as they call it, and you're reaching back there and that guy's coming up and he's handing that baton to you and you grab that baton. You have this just tremendous sense of, boy, I better not blow this. I better not drop it. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. And then he says, the God who is my shepherd, all who's been my shepherd all my life, even to this day. And so Jacob is here and and this is such a wonderful thing to hear Jacob say at the end of his life because this guy has stumbled all, stumbled all over the map, literally. <laughs> this guy has really stumbled all over the place, hasn't he? And to hear him say at the end of his life, from the very beginning, God has been my shepherd. And this idea of God as the shepherd of Israel is woven throughout Scripture. And there's no greater example of it than the 23rd Psalm. Just turn over there and let's look at that for a minute. Because as I was thinking on the 23rd Psalm yesterday, I was thinking, of course, we know it was written by David. But as I read it, I thought, man, Jacob could have written this psalm. You probably know. We could probably all quote it here from memory, but I'm not going to make you do that. Okay? But just just turn to uh, the 23rd Psalm and look what he says. He says, The Lord is my... Now, just think of Jacob. As if Jacob were saying this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table land before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The God who has been my shepherd, this kind of a shepherd, all my life, even to, he says, this day. This is a guy who is sick, really sick. <laughs> and sitting on his deathbed, and he knows it. And he says, God is my shepherd to this day. And as I was thinking about what are the aspects of a shepherd there that come out in the 23rd Psalm, and they are things that we can see in the life of Jacob, Interesting enough, I came up with seven. <laughs> I didn't intend to. It just They just fell out, okay? But these are the things that are obvious in the 23rd Psalm that a shepherd is doing for us, his sheep. He is providing, he is, he is making provision. I shall not want. He prepares a table land for me, etc., etc. So it's the idea that a shepherd is our provider. The shepherd provides restoration and refreshment. He says... He restores my soul. A shepherd gives guidance. He leads me beside the quiet waters. The shepherd gives protection. He says he provides a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I think of Jacob in the land of Canaan and, and how God protected him over and over again or, or when he came back to meet Esau. Uh, he gives, the shepherd gives correction. He says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The idea 
of the shepherd correcting him. And Jacob has been a man has often been corrected of the Lord. Uh, (coughs) The shepherd provides a posterity. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That recognition of, of what's going to come after him. And a shepherd gives a future. He says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And these are all things that Jacob could reflect back on his own, in his own life and see in his experience with God, how God has done each one of these things for him through his life, even though oftentimes at times he couldn't see it and didn't believe it. Well, and then he says, then he says, the angel who redeemed me from all evil. Now, that comes off a little strange to us because we don't usually think of an angel as God and usually... When an angel is referred to, it isn't the Lord. But there are times in Scripture when there is a reference to an angel when it very clearly is the Lord. A classic example would be the case of of uh, Ray, uh, not Rahab, uh, Abraham's concubine, uh, Hagar. Hagar. <laughs> Excuse me, Hagar. When Hagar has Ishmael and then she's driven out and she goes out. And she's about to die. And then she has this theophany, right? And it says an angel came to her and spoke to her and said this. But when it gets to the end of the story, she identifies that angel as whom? As Yahweh. As the God of Abraham. And so there are times in Scripture when an angel is referred to and it's the Lord. And it's usually a theophany. It's usually an actual physical appearance of God before the incarnation of Christ. Okay? So, it appears that what Jacob is thinking here is he's thinking about his theophanies. The times when God has appeared to him. But he says, he says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, and I think he's probably thinking particularly of the theophany that he has just mentioned, the one at Bethel, the second encounter of God at Bethel. Uh, and, uh, excuse me, not, not that theophany, the one at... Uh, the one at Peniel where he wrestled with God. Okay, So he comes to the river Jabbok and he has that all-night wrestling match with God. And what happens the next day? Who does he encounter the next day? Esau. Okay, Esau was the evil. Of course, by this time, Esau's heart towards him has changed, but he doesn't know that. Okay? So he thinks he's going to face evil and he wrestles all night with God and then God delivers him from the evil. And this has been the experience. Jacob, over and over and over again, has been delivered by God from evil, the evil of Laban, the evil of Esau's wrath, the evil of Jacob's abduction and selling to slavery. He's been redeemed from all of those things. And and typically it's associated with a theophany, with having actually seen God physically. As God appeared to him even at Beersheba before he went down to Egypt and saw Joseph in Egypt. So, so he associates this visual experience, this actual theophany of God. He associates that with all the deliverance. But what does he say God did? What does he say this angel did? Redeemed him. It doesn't, he, does, he doesn't say God rescued me from all evil. He says, God redeemed me from all evil. What does that imply? Well, what does it imply that God did? God paid a price. This, this folks, is a man of faith. What is the price that God paid? What is the price that God paid in order to deliver him from Esau? What is the price that God paid to deliver him from Laban? What is the price that God paid to deliver him in regard to what he thought was Joseph's death? What is the price God paid? His son. This is Jacob looking forward, recognizing that God can only deliver us from evil by paying a price. And he acknowledges and he knows that he can see no, nothing in his life. He can't see how God has paid the price yet. But he understands that a price will be paid that empowers and enables God 
to do the thing that he's going to do to deliver him from evil. It's Jacob, I believe, it's Jacob looking forward to the cross, even though he doesn't understand it. Well, then at this point, Jacob, Joseph gets upset. Okay, and he comes in here and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, Dad, you're doing this all wrong. You're, you're, blessing the, you're blessing the wrong son with the main blessing. you got your hands crossed. And he actually physically grabs his father's hand to move it over to Manasseh's head. And what does Jacob say? He says, I know. I know. This whole thing about the disregarding of primogeniture, which has happened over and over again in the story of the patriarchs, it happened with it happened with Isaac uh, and Ishmael, it happened with Jacob and Esau, it's happened now with Joseph and Reuben, and now it's happening with Manasseh and Ephraim. Over and over again, primogeniture has been turned over overturned or disregarded. And now we find out this isn't just something that Jacob had. You know, early on, we saw how Jacob was so upset and he didn't like the fact his brother was getting the... And so he manipulated and he did all this stuff to try and... But we have to remember that even though Jacob was doing all of that and he was manipulating and doing it in the flesh, still, way back before that, there was a promise uttered to his mother that overturned primogeniture. Now, God doesn't always overturn primogeniture in the Scriptures, but many times He does. And one of the classic times He does it is in the story of choosing David to be the king of Israel. Remember when Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and he goes through all the older sons first and then he gets to the youngest one, the one that they didn't even bring in to David, and he brings him in. And what does God say to Samuel is the reason why he picked David over all these other sons who were older than him? Because God looks on the heart. It says man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so what we see here in this thing about primogeniture, yeah, it's the, it's the reasonable way to do things. It's the logical way to do things given the culture. It's human wisdom. But God is not bound by human wisdom. And God does not weigh as valuable the things that we weigh as valuable. He has His own economy and He has His own scale of measure. And God makes the choice. And God often chooses the things that are contemptible in this world and the things that are weak and the things that are little to confound the things that are great and wise. God oftentimes does that and He's done it over and over again in the story of the patriarchs here. And here He does it again. And Jacob now is saying, I know. I understand God. I understand God here and I understand what God is doing and I know what God is doing and I know what He wants to do with Ephraim and I know what He wants to do with Manasseh and so I'm going to give, I'm going to give Ephraim the greater blessing. It's a man of faith. And then he goes on and he gives the rest of the blessing and he says, I'm going to give, you know, I'm going to die and you're going to go on and, and I'm going to give you a double portion in the land of the inheritance, etc., and there are things we could say about that, but, but uh, I'll forgo them at this point. But I just, I, I wanted to take a moment here at the end just to think about where Jacob is now in his life. His faith is so sterling at this point. It's so moving to me to see this guy at the end of his life. This guy who, who he... he he started out as a he started out as a uh, as a supplanter, right? And now he ends up as what a planter, one whose seed will fill the earth. He started out as a manipulator. He he he, he knew what needed to be done, and so he was just going to manipulate things and make sure they got done that way. He started out as a manipulator, but now he ends up as a prophet. He just understands God's going to, all he has to do is just say it. 
because God's going to do it. He doesn't have to manipulate anymore. He begins in the flesh and he ends his life in faith. Uh, Gary was asking me, uh, we were talking last week at the after class, we were talking about what changed. Why, why does Jacob become this great man of faith at the end of his life? And then we were talking about there's probably a couple things. One is, I think, one of the things that I think is that he'd been through the school of hard knocks. He had been, he had, he had, he had tried over and over again to do things in the flesh and, and it always resulted in problems and conflict and struggle. And I think over a period of time, he began to learn through God's discipline. This is not the way to live. So I think on one part, it was in one sense, it was God's discipline through his life that eventually brings him to this point of faith. But I think the other thing, I think the great catalyst was when his sons came to him and said Joseph was alive. And Jacob is now overwhelmed with the goodness of God. He says it here in this verse, in this passage. He says, I never expected to see your face. And now I see your children as well. And he is overwhelmed with this unexpected goodness of God. So it's the discipline of his God in his life, coupled with this marvelous kindness of God in his life, that these two things together have worked together to shape Joseph, or excuse me, to shape Jacob into this great man of faith that we see at the end. And we're not even at the best part yet. We've still got the blessing of the 12 sons that just goes through the roof. And so one of the things I learned from the life of Jacob is it's not how you start that matters, it's how you finish. It's not how we began in life. It's not even where we are now in life that matters. But what really matters is where will we be at the end. And Jacob is a man who finished his life as a man of sterling and glorious faith. And that's what we need to be shooting for. Okay? Next week we'll go on to chapter 49 and the blessing of the sons.